0: Tools, equipment, and all of it.
1: The Outline. World Dispatch.
0: Wednesday, May 17th, 2017. I'm John Valgo Marcino. Today on the dispatch, Andy Martino on how Trump's approval rating could affect the next House elections.
2: And if Republicans lose control of the House, John, guess what could happen?
1: Jeff Haza on Master of None. It's like this is the America we could have. And Adrian
0: Jeffries on China's multilingualism.
3: There is one country that's investing more in language learning.
0: Here's the dispatch. Power. Gallup's most recent daily tracking numbers have Donald Trump's approval rating at the lowest it's been at this point in the presidency since they began collecting that kind of data during the Truman administration. My colleague Andy Martino wrote about this, as well as the effect that that could have down the line for Republicans. Uh, Andy, how's it going?
2: I'm well, John. How are you?
0: Very good. Um so tell me about some numbers here. What are we looking at and how bad are Trump's approval numbers at the moment?
2: Well, they're they're historically terrible as you said, John. 38% approval. You know, there's a lot of talk about how Trump's base hasn't moved and and there are different studies and polls showing he's maintained his support among that hardcore base, but really other than that, as you said, no president that we've ever known about, going all the way back to Harry Truman has been this unpopular. This early in his presidency and what that means practically for Trump is huge potentially because what a Gallup study in 2010 showed that uh, the average number of House seats that a president's party loses when his approval at the midterms is less than 50 percent is 36. He loses an average of 36 seats in the House of Representatives or his party does. Now if Trump loses 24, and it could be 23, depending on what happens in this Georgia runoff that's sooner. If Trump loses that many, the Republicans lose control of the House. And if Republicans lose control of the House, John, guess what could happen? An impeachment. An impeachment. Now, it's a more exciting word uh, than it actually is a concept, but uh, it would take a lot to get him there, and the Senate's going to be harder to flip over to Democratic control.
0: But the GOP is defending against that situation in some ways, right?
2: Yeah, they sent out a fundraising letter actually using the prospect of impeachment to raise money for Republican congressional candidates, which when you think about it, is extraordinary. That the men- you'd think that that would be a fundraising thing for Democrats, like let's get this SOB out of office, but it's the Republicans saying don't let them impeach our president. Think about how front of mind that means that something like impeachment is.
0: That was explicitly mentioned in the fundraising letter
2: yes it was so politico reported on this back in uh early part of may may 10th political had an article uh, that they'd found a fundraising letter uh sent out by republicans called calls for impeachment grow louder which this is what they're doing they're saying protect the president against the uh, democrats trying to impeach him by electing republican Congress people. so that's uh that just it, it's it's just amazing that's in that's obviously pro-trump And we're still talking about impeachment. That's what a train wreck, uh, this guy, obviously is.
0: Yeah, that's remarkable. Mm. All right, thanks.
2: All right. Culture.
0: Last Friday, Netflix premiered all 10 episodes of the second season of Master of None, Aziz Ansari's scripted comedy. Jeffy Haza, writer at The Outline, reviewed it for us. And I should mention right now, we're going to be talking about some mild spoilers for the end of Master of None. So if you're trying to avoid those, you should probably skip the story. Jeff, hey. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, So you took the controversial stance that Master of None falls short. Um, Yeah.
1: I mean, I guess I would hope that it's not a super controversial stance. I think what happens with a lot of shows, uh, particularly on Netflix when they premiere, is that I guess a lot of press outlets get either early access or something and have these, like, kind of nice cushy stories about it day of. Um, but I, I, I'm sure that after time passes, people will find that they agree with me. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, what, one of the things about the show is that, you know, the first season was very, you know, deservedly praised for doing a lot of things really well. So there were episodes that tackled representation. There are episodes where you had a more human There are episodes where you had a more humanized look at LGBT people, black people, um, unemployed people. Like the show really did make an effort to be, you know, for lack of a better term, woke. Um, But despite all of that, it doesn't do that much in terms of actually providing you with a good show. (laughs) So it's like you get these snippets of feel-good moments. It's like you get these like Obama speeches in episodes where it's like, oh, wow, this is like this perfect American story. Um, but then the actual central narrative is just kind of the same nerdy boy tries to get the girl, the girl says no, the boy cries about it, and then the girl comes back. It's what, like,
0: <laughs> What is the narrative of the second season?
1: So the second season, the first episode is this very fun episode where it's kind of, it's modeled after the bicycle thief. We, we catch Dev in Italy and then, you know, very quickly he comes back to New York and the show kind of moves back to its central pace, which is telling stories inside of New York, going to all these nice restaurants in New York. Unlike a lot of other shows that take place in New York, I'm thinking Broad City, 30 Rock, a lot of the like classic New York TV shows, uh, Master of None really has this super polished look to it. Um, and And something I find interesting about the show is instead of living in the New York that exists, Master of None sort of presents this idyllic universe, right, where it's like the streets are always empty, and everything's always clean, and you're never getting run into by anyone, and no one's yelling curse words at you for no reason. It's it's very pretty on the surface. It kind of touches on a lot of like important social justice issues on the surface, but really deep down, it well, doesn't have that much. Well, justice. right, the
0: show does go out of its way to present progressive
1: yeah. issues. Right, it's like a very long Hillary Clinton campaign ad. It's like this is the America we could have.
0: You mentioned in 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 your review that it has an element of like after school special. Yes. To yes.
1: It. I mean, I think that's the best way to describe it. It's like you know, the 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 story really gets kind of heated around a character who is essentially dev's boss at this TV network and he gets in trouble for sexually sexual misconduct with coworkers.
2: Well, you started off just making remarks about how I looked. And then it just got a little out of hand.
1: And in a lot of the scenes that deal with that, it's just like, yeah, it would be great if this is how it happened when stars got in trouble. But that's not what happens. <laughs> um, you know, there's this conversation where Dev goes back to one of the makeup artists who ended up quitting because the guy was being creepy to her. And it's just the scene that's like, it's so woke, it hurts, almost.
2: <laughs> how about we talk to someone above Paula? No. No, it's fine. Look... I don't want to make a huge deal about it. I'd rather just move on to this gig and forget about it. (laughs) What am I going to do, Sue Food TV? Have it take over my entire life? No, I'd rather just keep it moving.
1: You know, it's like Dev now gets to be this, like, nice guy, right? He goes in, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's such a bummer, man. That's crazy. And it's like, I don't know what, you know, presenting a perfect ally looks like on TV, but I think watching that made me feel weird. And I don't know what that means.
0: So, overall, Master of None season two. If you had to give it a letter grade,
1: oh man, I'd give it a C. I think it looks really good. I think it's like, I think it's the type of show that if you're like a 17 year old boy and some girl just broke your heart, you're probably going to find a lot of solace in it. But the problem is that 17 year old boys are really dumb (laughs) and like they should feel nothing but pain. So, take that for what it is. Jeff, thank you. Yeah, thank you.
0: (laughs)
3: Power. Foreign language learning at U.S. and British colleges and universities has been steadily declining. According to the Modern Language Association, enrollments in foreign language college courses dropped 6.7% between 2009 and 2013. And only half of four-year colleges and universities in the U.S. require any foreign language course at all. But, as the outline reported yesterday, there is one country that's investing more in language learning, especially for more niche languages. That country is China. The Beijing Foreign Studies University already offers A4 language majors. But its goal is to teach all the official languages of countries with which China has diplomatic relations. So now it's adding courses or majors in 11 new languages that span the Middle East, the Pacific, Africa, and Eastern Europe. The new language tracks include Kurdish, Maori, Samoan, as well as the likes of Tegrinya and Ndebele, which are specific to certain regions of Africa. And while some of them have very few speakers, All 11 of them combined encompass the native languages of 60 million people. So why is China investing so much in languages? In 2013, it announced a major economic development initiative called the One Belt, One Road Initiative, later shortened to the Belt and Road Initiative. It's a global trade network to connect Asia with Europe and Africa along five trade routes. According to the Chinese, 63% of the global population lives along these routes, and many of them will not speak Western colonial languages. And even if those locals did know English or French, two major languages in those regions, the Chinese government still wouldn't want to use them to communicate. The current dean of the School of Asian and African Studies at Wei, Sun Xiaoming, told the Beijing Review that using these colonial languages, quote, perpetuates hegemony. It's also likely that the Chinese don't want to do business in the language of a rival superpower. The U.S. government has expressed little interest in most of the new languages China is investing in. Scott McGuinness, a professor at the U.S. Defense Language Institute where American service members get language training, told the outline that some of the languages are rarely taught and spoken by so few people that it would be challenging just to develop classroom materials to teach them. Official language schools for the U.S. military and diplomats have the combined capacity to teach around 70 languages. But every year, federal agencies put together a list of languages they deem critical for their work. And in 2016, that list included only three of the new byway Wei offerings. For over a decade, China has built the global reach of its soft power through teaching Mandarin. As of 2016, there were nearly 500 Confucius Institutes around the world, 46 of which were located in Africa. The growing language resources at Byway suggest that China is expanding its linguistic strategies even further, prompting a comparison between China's investment in learning about the rest of the world and the U.S.'s relative solipsism. Learning the native languages of future partners as it builds a massive trade network does seem like a pretty smart strategy on China's part.
0: That concludes the dispatch. I'm John Lago Marcino. Till tomorrow.